Welcome to the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. On this podcast, let's step aside from our busy lives to have fun, fascinating, life-giving conversation with inspiring authors, pastors, sports personalities, and other influencers, leaders, and followers. Sit back, grab some coffee, or head down the road, and let's get the good and gold from today's guest. Here's Jeff Pinkleton, Executive Director of the Gathering of the Miami Valley, where their mission is to connect men to men and men to God. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pinkleton Pull Aside Podcast, where we like to talk all things sports, books, comedy, the list goes on and on. We like to talk leadership, life, lessons therein, and all the ways that that plays out into a bunch of spheres. And I'm really blessed today to have Richard Simmons the third with us. I know for people when they hear Richard Simmons, they're obviously thinking crazy hair, tank top, goofy short. That's not him. This guy has a lot to offer, a lot more to offer us. And I was turned on to Richard a number of years ago. If I remember correctly, it was by a guy that was involved in a gathering down in West Palm Beach, Florida, Bob Schumann. I'll give him a little shout out. And I stumbled upon one of Richard's books. I think it was Reasons for the Existence of God. After that, read his book on humility. And then he's got a book, The True Measure of a Man. They're great for guys I know. They're not five or 600-page reads. They have great font. When you hold them, you're like, yeah, I can get through this book. But they pack some real meat. And then me and his secretary, Becky, have been in touch for quite some time trying to figure out when we can knock this out. And I often say if it takes a while to line it up, that just means God has something great in store. So, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. It's a real honor for me to be with you. So we talked before we got on here about football and recent national championship game. And if I'm right, you're a big SEC guy. So give us a little flavor for your love of college football and the sports world in general. Well, I started going to uh, SEC games, particularly Alabama games, when I was six years old, and I'm 69. So this goes way back uh, to Bear Bryant and just all the, the great years that Alabama had. But it's been interesting just to watch. If, of course, if you know anything about football down here, we have a huge rivalry with our, our in-state college, uh, Auburn. Interestingly, my oldest son, who grew up a big Alabama fan, ends up going to Auburn. Mm. And now he is, uh, and he and my youngest son just are at each other. My youngest son says he's a traitor. <laughs> uh, the three of us went to the Alabama-Auburn game this year and had a great time. But no, I, I, it's it's a very healthy thing for me. Uh, I don't really keep up with professional sports. Um, I like college basketball, college football, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So I was a football chaplain for the uh, local college uh, in Springfield, Wittenberg Tiger football team for about 15 years. And when I would speak at chapel, one of the stories I love telling, and you probably know who this might be about. It, it was, uh, I don't know the exact players, but there was a story uh, about Bear Bryant coaching Alabama. Obviously, that was years ago. And they there was one game they had, they were beating somebody, I forgot who it was, and they were beating them by less than a touchdown. And it was late in the game. And he had, like, I can't remember if the, the quarterback was a backup. I think he was. And, like, a backup receiver in. And they're supposed to do the play. And the receiver, I think, says to the quarterback, like, look, we may never get this chance again. I know you're supposed to take a knee. But backup, fake the knee and throw the ball to me. Let's get a touchdown. Well, they did it. The only problem was uh, pass wasn't that good. Defensive back intercepted it. 
So he's running down, you know, pick six. Quarterback takes off. Out of nowhere, he catches him. I think it's like within the five-yard line. Game's over. Alabama wins. Crazy, way dramatic, didn't have to be. And in a locker room after the game, as the story goes, someone asked Bear Bryant about it and said, so what was it like for that whoever the kid was, you know, running to, to get that guy? He goes, well, the other kid was running for a touchdown. My kid was running for his life. <laughs> and I used to transition that and talk about, you know, what are you doing with your life? Are you running for a touchdown in a game or are you running for your life? And uh, <laughs> I remember Bear Bryant as a kid enough. I'm 53. I remember seeing him coach and I thought – yeah, he, he's not the biggest guy. He's not the strongest guy, but I don't think I want to take Bear Bryant off. Yeah, don't mess with him, for sure. Have for you sure. heard that story? <laughs> I have not heard that story, and so I question whether it really happened, but it, whether it happened or not, it's a great story, and that sounds like something Bryant would say, for yeah. sure. Well, and it's funny because growing up around here, most of my life, I, I was in Tennessee for six years, but then we moved when I was a kid to Springfield. I mean, we've got the lore, the history of Woody Hayes, which right. is, is a little bit more colorful, than Bear Bryant, but uh, I don't think anybody today can appreciate those coaches back then. Bo Schembechler, Vince Dooley, Bear Bryant, uh, Woody. I mean, just some stoic, gothic, chiseled faces, ch- you know, just, yeah. No, I'm with you. They're, they're classic. I mean, and uh, I mean, Bryant will remain just a, you know, just a famous, famous person down here forever. And I, I again, I got to, I grew up getting to watch him. I've had opportunities to go to some of the practices and see him in action at practice. And it was, uh, I mean, I, I'll never forget it. Yeah. Growing up, I've always been my least favorite team in pro sports has always been the Dallas Cowboys. You know, you grow up America's team, people either love them or they don't. I've never right. liked the Cowboys. I got to go to their chapel one time. And I think it was in 2010. They played the Steelers. So they were in Pittsburgh and I got to go to the chapel. <coughs> I was friends with the guy who's the chapel at the time. And Jerry Jones walked in and, uh, Jason Garrett's brother, John, was there, and Calvin Hill, and Greg Ellis, and some of the guys on the team. But I always wow. tell people, as much as I've never cheered for the Cowboys, I was in awe of Tom Landry. Tom Landry with that hat on, that chin, that that shadow in Texas Stadium, that was football to me. He was a great man. He really, not a great coach, but a great man. He was sure. a god. I mean, what, if I remember correctly, I mean, godly, godly, godly man, right? Very, very, very much so. Very yeah. much so. Well, let's get on. We could probably talk about this for a while, and it's not why you got you got uh, done working out and everything you were doing to be a part of this. So, Richard, give us your three-minute testimony. Like, what was it like you coming to Jesus, deciding for Jesus? What was God up to at that point in your life? Yeah, it's funny that you asked that question, Jeff, because recently um, I really gave a lot of thought to just, uh, you know, what really has to happen in a person's mm-hmm. life to become a Christian? And I, I took what I had really learned and I applied it to my own story, which I'll share with you. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I went with my father to what was called the mayor's prayer breakfast. It was mm. here in Birmingham and uh, the, the, the mayor would be there and they'd bring in some important speaker. And, and I don't remember who this person was. And again, I'm, I'm 69. This was when I was 11 or 12. But I, I remember I heard and I can still vividly see this man sharing. I vividly remember him sharing the gospel and I got it. I understood it. Maybe really for the very first time, just to understand the basic gospel message. But that didn't, I didn't really want it, but I understood it for the first time. Mm. And I do think you have to understand the gospel to properly respond to it. 
Then fast forward to when I was 17, and I remember going to a Young Life meeting, and it was the week of Easter. And I remember the speaker wasn't a very dynamic speaker, but he read out the evidence for the resurrection, which I had never heard before. And I remember driving home as a 17-year-old thinking, you know, this is true. I'd never thought about it before, but this is true. Jesus really existed. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. But again, I really didn't want it in my life. Mm. So I had it up here in my head in that I understood the gospel. I believed it was true, but it never made it into my heart. I never really surrendered my heart or my will. And then fast forward about three years later, I was in college. And one of my very best friends from high school, he and I, we were in different colleges, but our spring breaks coincided. And we drove down to Disney World. Disney World had just opened. It had been open like three months. Again, shows you my age. But I didn't realize it. But driving down there, my friend was trying to evangelize me. Mm. And he had what I'd never seen these before, these cassette tapes. And we listened to these cassette tapes on Josh McDowell. Oh, yeah. Evidence that demands a verdict had just come out. Mm -hmm. And I was just blown away by the message. I mean, it was an apologetics message, but it had a real impact. The Holy Spirit obviously was work, doing work in my life. Because a couple of days later, we were in a hotel room. He was sound asleep. And I remember I got out of my bed. I got on my knees. And I waved the white flag. Mm. I surrendered. And my life has never been the same since, but it's caused me to realize how important it's when it comes to evangelism, that people understand the message. They believe it's true. I'm a big believer in apologetics because it played such a role in my life. Sure. But ultimately there's got to be a surrender of the heart or the will recognizing I'm a sinner. I need God's forgiveness and Lord, I surrender my life to you and I want to follow you. Mm -hmm. And my life's never been the same since. Uh, it completely changed my life. And um, uh, that's, you know, been 47 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, 47 years ago. And um, that's my story. I love what you're saying there as far as understanding and saying, like, this makes sense, but maybe it's not for you at that moment at that time. I think so often we think grasp and now, you know, waving a white flag bowing the knee, deciding to follow Jesus is one and the same. And I think, you know, I've always appreciated you mentioned, we, you know, we talk a little bit about Young Life. I used to really value and appreciate kids that would go to Young Life camp with me and they would think really long and hard about the gospel. And they would say, I'm not ready. I'm still processing this. I, I, I'm not ready. You know, at a Young Life meeting at a Young Life club, there is peer pressure like crazy to say you're, you're a Christian, you're following Jesus. Right. And right. I would really respect those kids that maybe didn't make a decision then but coming home that next year, within some point in time, they maybe would follow Jesus. And I'd said, wow, I think this, this sticks. So moving to some of your content, one of the things you're big about is character over competence. You talk about it, what that looks like. What does that look like for you, say, day-to-day, -day, monthly, annually? You know, I, I think about, I'm going to guess you resonate with Mark 135. Jesus got up early, went off to a solitary place to pray. What are some rhythms and what does that look like in your life, Richard, to fan into your character over your competence? Yeah. Well, I think that unfortunately we live in a culture 
that measures men's lives by their competence and their accomplishments um, and their achievements. And that's not to say that's not important because it, I mean, obviously it is, you want to be as good as you can be at whatever it is you're doing. But, and this kind of gets into the book that I wrote on the true measure of a man. You know, how, how do we really measure masculinity? What does it truly mean to be a, a real man? I think one of the, the great problems in men's lives today is that they have truly, they have false ideas about masculinity and what that is. When I, I'll never forget when I uh, finished the book, writing the book, The True Measure of Man, and the publisher who was going to publish it, we, he wanted to meet with me and we met and he asked, he says, well, what, what is the true measure of a man mm. when it gets right down to it? And of course, it's in the book, but it was a real simple response and the, the response was, Christ-likeness. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And that's where, when I share what Christ-likeness means, it starts with your character. You know, the the man that you are. You know, we we are so, as men, we get so into what we're experiencing in life, where God is much more concerned with the kind of men that we are becoming. And using your example, you know, men ask me all the time, well, how do you become more Christ-like? I said, well, you can't make yourself Christ-like. You can't do it with just effort and willpower. It basically, it's, God has to do a work in your life. And what happens is you seek him, particularly as a believer, as you seek to deepen your relationship with him, he changes you. Because when it gets right down to it, you can't change your heart. Mm. You really can't just say, as an act of my will, I'm going to change my character. Mm. I mean, you can give effort, but when it gets right down to it, you need an agent outside of you in the case that I'm speaking of, obviously the Holy spirit to come and do a work in your life. Now I will add this real quickly. Christ likeness is more than just your character. There's two other components and there may be even more than two, but I always like to make sure people understand it also involves having great wisdom. Of course, you know, I've written a book on wisdom and I'm, I'm real big on the importance of wisdom. And then the ability to love and have deep substantive substantive relationships. And I love to share this with people because when I first heard that God's desire for me as a man is to become more Christ-like, I just wasn't really interested in that, Jeff, because I didn't understand what it was. But now that I do, and as I share this with men, I tell them, this is something that every man that I know really wants and desires. Wow. So... You know, I think we share a similar belief that living with other men, being in community, ministering to other men is a huge need. We want to put a flag in the ground to say we're going to be about that. There are things that our wives and families can't provide. I think some guys believe in that lie that, you know, my wife's supposed to be my best friend and every need I have once I'm married is met by her. Or, you know, obviously it's, it's off to think it's her kids or whatever. At what point in your life did this become a priority? Because, like I said, I think there's some ways you and I clearly have hearts that parallel each other from breakfast you're tied to to breakfast we do, whatever. Where was a moment or season where you're like, man, this is this is why I believe in investing time and energy into men? You know, I'm not sure I can put my finger on the the, the time, but it's 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 been in the last probably 30 years or so. It was well before I was doing any research on the true measure of a man. But I remember reading from this guy named Joe Ehrman, who is, oh, yeah. has men's ministry and uh, you know former NFL all-pro football player. And he said something in his book, Seasons of Life, that really impacted me. 
He said most men over the age of 35 do not have one true friend. Mm -hmm. Now, they have a lot of acquaintances. They have a lot of people that they might play golf with and hang out with. But they don't have anybody where they can truly be transparent, truly let their guard down. And because of that, I think men are missing out on what real life is, particularly on the relational side. I mean, clearly having a great marriage and having relationships with your children is of critical importance. But friendship is so different. Friendship with other men is so different. In fact, the Bible is real clear. If you read the book of Proverbs, that you really can't live the life and have the and, and experience the life that God has for you as a man without friends. Mm. And when I say friends, I'm talking about men that you can truly be vulnerable with. Yeah. And so 18 years ago, three other men and I, we began to meet. The goal is to meet monthly. Uh, it's become a little more difficult over time, but we, we still we, we meet regularly, the four of us. The first thing we do is we ask, is anybody watched pornography since we last met and we just confront each other with that because that's a real issue in men's lives and then each person kind of goes through and shares what's going on in their marriage what's going on in their lives their struggles whatever and it's amazing the relationships that have been forged through that time together and fortunately um, our, our spouses are good friends as well they've become good friends and we've gotten to a point now where, where we even travel together uh, this past year, we went to Maine back in uh, September. Wow. None of us had ever been to Maine, and we spent a week up there. But I, I would just say this. It's been life-changing. I think men friends bring into your life something that no other relationship can bring. And so I, I think it's absolutely critical to be a healthy man, and that is to have healthy, really good, healthy relationships with uh, with a few men. Amen. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. I think about that. I think we gotta, we gotta get that right. You know, uh, Patrick Morley makes the line that if we get the man right, we get the family right. If we get the family right, we get the church right. We get the church right, we get the community right. I mean, is that a, is that a statement and a thought that you believe with everything you've got in you? Yeah, you know, I, I've never heard that, I, I, and I'm familiar with, with uh, Morley. I mean, I've met him a couple of times, so we don't know each other, but and I've read several of his books. Uh, I really like that. I think it's spot on, and I'm, I've, I've started to realize that just, and we have a, another ministry that we have started called Renew Birmingham to, to work with the poor and revitalize poor communities here in Birmingham, and and that's one of the things that, that that's very apparent. There, there are not a lot of men in uh, the families in the inner city, and it's, it's amazing just the impact it's made on the lives of, the, of kids growing up. But it, it, I just recently, I, Jeff, I had something happen that this that really, and it made me realize how important this is. And there are a number of ways that I think that that we should be the the men that God has called us to be in our families. But my daughter, who is, uh, I've got three children, two boys and a, and a young, young daughter, and she's 24 now. And she recently kind of shocked me. She said, Dad, and I'm not patting my back, myself on the back, but I was just really stunned. It made me realize, is it uh, pertinent to your question, how important it is as men. But she said, Dad, you know, I really want to marry a man like you. Mm. And I thought she might say because of your character or because, you know, you provide for the, I didn't know where she was going with this. You're, you know, you're 
the relationship with the Lord. She said, I love the way you love my mom. Mm. She said, that's really, really touched me. And that I want, I want a man that will love me that way. And wow. I thought, wow, you know, just think, I, I didn't realize the impact me really loving my wife had on my children. And so whether you like it or not, it really, when it comes to our culture, it starts with the men. It really does. And the family, and then the family impacts the community. I mean, so I think Morley's on to something uh, in that statement. Well, I love how you said it too, because in our circles, one of the things we talk a lot about is, you know, when, when uh, you, you look at your kids and say, what can we do best for our kids? It's love the mom, love their mom well. So you, Absolutely. in a very practical way, sounds like you've done that for a 24-year-old who's clearly not a kid anymore, but obviously right. probably has some memory of, of times and moments and vacations and good times, bad times, whatever, knows that that's happened. And she wants a man to do the same thing. Man, what, what greater testimony? So today, Richard, we hear terms like identity crisis when it comes to men. We hear about toxic masculinity. We know men have a lot of fears, a lot of concerns. What are some fears? What are some of the bigger fears you think men struggle with? And how does that play or how do we fix that with this kind of identity crisis amongst men? Well, first and foremost, you know, I, I think that men have some basic fears. And again, when it comes to this, our relationship with God plays a crucial role. Uh, we, we clearly have one of the basic fears that men have is the fear of death. And that's, we, we recognize that. I think that um, we fear and worry about our loved ones. But when it gets to just your day-to-day -day living, I think men have, and this really does relate to your identity as a man. And this is probably true of women as well. But one of the most basic fears that we have is the fear of basically, what do other people think about me? Mm. What do people think about me as a man? And it has such a huge impact on the way we live our lives, uh, what becomes priority in our lives. Because when it gets right down to it, I think we have come to believe that the greatest way to win the esteem of others is to perform well out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. What I've learned, Jeff, about this has really kind of stunned me. But one of the biggest fears that men have and men, that men struggle with, and they don't talk about it, is the fear of failing. A fear of failing. And it's, it's kind of like a, it's like a psychological death. And I've seen this in so many, and I've been stunned by it. One of the most successful people I know in the commercial real estate business told me uh, not long ago, I said not long, a couple of years ago, he says, you know, when my feet hit the floor every morning, the one thing that drives me is the fear of failing. I was stunned. Uh, Bernie Madoff, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. the great Ponzi scheme, uh, uh, the guy that pulled off the great Ponzi scheme, when he was asked in prison, why did you do this? He said, I was driven by one thing. I was, I was afraid to fail financially. Wow. I watched my father fail and I didn't want to fail. And so we don't realize this, but I think most men have that sense that what happened, you know, what if I fail? It's kind of like this. This is the way life works for so many men. What do I do in life? You know, what is it that I do? What do you do? And how successful are you at what you do? And then the question becomes, so what do you think about what I do? Yes. 
And then you kind of keep going and you say, well, what if I fail at what I do? What will you think about me then? Mm. And so this, this is a huge fear in, in a man's life and it has a huge impact on his identity. And it, it can be very destructive, I guess is the best way I, I can put it. What's the best way for guys like me and you to really make a dent and gain ground and be victorious in that for, for the lives of men around us? The best way I know to put it, and, and this was not a Chris, this was a, a sociologist who came up with a theory called the looking glass self. And what he said, and I think he's true, it's true, and I think he's spot on. He says, the way you see yourself in life is based on how the most important person in your life sees you. Mm. He says, it starts with, as a kid, your parents are the most important people in your life. And so you see yourself based on the way they see you. They're kind of the audience that you seek to perform for. But then as you can imagine, as you get older and become a teenager, your parents are no longer the most important people in your life. Your peers are. And that's where the power of peer pressure comes in. That what matters most is what do my peers think about me? They're the most important people in my life. And then as you keep going, you go to college, you go out in the workforce, it becomes the people that you socialize with, the, the, your colleagues, the people in your community, maybe even the people in your church. And you basically seek to perform for them. Yeah. The problem is that creates just incredible issues and problems, as I just described. And so the answer to your question is this. What would happen to a man or even a woman if Jesus is the most important person in your life? If he's the one that you seek, let me put it this way. He's the audience that you seek to please. And as you read about, you know, Jesus in John 8, 29 says, basically he, he lives his life to seek to please him. And so that to me is the solution. And it will, it, it will truly set you free from so much of the fear that's out there. And it will give you a very strong and healthy identity. It's interesting. As you said that I was thinking of the, the phrase audience of one and more contemporary speaking, Carson Wentz has kind of made that popular through his audience of one AO one foundation. And as his career looks like it's kind of coming to a close at NFL as he's had a rough last couple of years, I'm kind of saddened by it. I like him. Uh, you know, I'm sure b- both you and I probably carry a similar torch that, you know, if I have no other reason to cheer for someone, if they follow Jesus and are bold about their faith, I want to cheer for that person. And I'm Amen. like, man, I, I would love to see Carson Wentz's platform grow. I'd love to see him have a bigger you know, whatever kind of voice with what he does. But I'm like, you know, hey, Tim Tebow gets out of football and he ain't suffered at all. So maybe Carson Wentz will follow down a, a certain road based on that. But um, hey, let's move to the side a little bit here and have a little fun. I have these five kind of quick hitting, light, uh, somewhat meaty questions I like to ask called the Rapid Five. Richard, what is your favorite childhood snack or cereal? Um, <laughs> uh, Raisin Bran. Raisin. Now that's, do you know many kids eating raisin bran? And I I remember I can, I can still see myself. I used to sit on the, on the washing machine, which was in our small kitchen Mm. and I'd sit on the washing machine and I'd eat raisin bran. Wow. That sounds like spending some Mark 135 time. You're, you're alone early in the morning (laughs) with Jesus because you got some raisin bran. Man, nobody's ever said that one. So what is your favorite non-Richard Simmons, the third book you most like to gift to other people? You know, for years, I love giving Bob Buford's book halftime. halftime. Yeah. 
I mean, that I did that for years. And I, since then, I've, I've kind of changed. And it really kind of depends on the person. People who are not Christians, who are struggling, I give the book, really one of the books that I wrote called The Reason for Life. Uh, you know, why did God put me here? And it's really just a presentation of the gospel. Just recently, like in December, I gave out about 50 copies of Tim Keller's new book on, Forgive. book on forgiveness, Yeah, which uh, I think is such a crucial uh, book. But really, Jeff, I'm really kind of looking for a new book to give. I mean, I can give my own books out, but you know, I, I'd rather find a book that really means something to me that I can give to other men. Yeah. And I've got plenty of them out there. Uh, Gordon McDonald's got several of them. Um, but uh, Halftime... I know telling how many yeah. copies I've given out over the years. That's a great book. Two books I'm reading right now as a focus are Forgive, Keller's book, and it's it's been it's been better than I thought even. I, I like how he's looking at it culturally and kind of, you know, where we've taken yeah. it to a tone of, of uh, no, I'm just not giving it to you. Like, you get power. And I've been reading Bono's book called Surrender that just came out. I'm a big U2 fan, and Bono's new book has really been better than I would have hoped or thought, and I love his really? vulnerability. Oh, yeah. I love his vulnerability. It's called, it's called Surrender? Yeah, it's about 40 of U2 songs over the years. I highly recommend it. It's 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 been really good. I had a Facebook post. You, you have to look it up on Facebook. I had a post the other day and talked about how the Lord really spoke to me through one of their songs the other day. I wasn't even looking for it, and I feel like God to go listen to this song based on something I was kind of dealing with with somebody in my life that I love, and and uh, nothing major, but just seeing them struggle in an area. And uh, yeah, it's been a really good book. I mean, if you're a YouTube fan at all, which I am, it, it's it's been a really good book. So I'll, I'll order it when we're finished with the uh, with the podcast. Yeah. How many grandkids do you have? Zero. Really? Well, we're gonna. I have three children. None of them are married. I got a 26-year-old son. I got a 24-year-old daughter. I got a 23-year-old son. I have something. I'm, I'm kind of unusual, Jeff. I didn't get married until I was 41 years old. Okay. And I married, a, and I've been married almost 28 years, and uh, she's a fabulous woman. Whenever I tell people that, they say, well, how many times were you married before 41? Zero. <laughs> I've never been married before. Yeah. And so I'm behind. All my friends have grandchildren, yeah. and uh, I don't even have a, a daughter or son-in-law yet. Yeah, so, I'm, a, I'm uh, a little bit in that boat. Anyway. Not, not to that extent, but my my kids are younger, but I've got a little bit of a similar flavor. Well, let's say with your kids. Let's say you're doing a family vacation. The five of you are leaving Birmingham. Maybe you're heading my way to Springfield, Ohio. You get to about Nashville or thereabout. You, you're going to stop for lunch, but then one of your kids, they got the weak bladder, and they're like, hey, Dad, we got to stop sooner than later. So you got five or 10 minutes before you were going to whatever exit and you're like, well, we're not stopping twice. We're going to stop once. Or maybe this happened two years ago and you got these three places. I, I assume you've traveled enough. You will know the third one you get, you get on the exit sign, Chick-fil-A, you get McDonald's and you get in and out burger. Have you been to in and out burger? I have not. Oh, have you been to Whataburger? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, well, I've never. Yeah, I think maybe I've been there, but it's been a long time. If I have, so I'm a I'm an in and out guy. I've been to California and Arizona a couple times, so I've got my in and out. Where do you guys stop and eat as a family? It's a no brainer, Chick Fil A. Yeah. My kids love it. I love it. They'll always appreciate. You'll appreciate this. Uh, several years ago, when uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, that's the is not the founder, but his son, Dan Kathy. Dan Caffey was asked about something and he, he talked about his belief in traditional marriage. I mean, he wasn't, Oh yeah, he wasn't. And all these organizations says we, we want you to, <laughs> we want you to boycott Chick-fil-A. Yeah. 
so my wife and my three kids, or maybe my, my, my youngest, because he was still a teenager, they said, well, we're going. She said, we had to wait in line an hour and a half yeah. to get our food. And they had the biggest day they've ever had. I remember that. Yeah. For fans of Chick-fil-A. Yeah, I, I remember that well. So what's the movie, if you're flipping channels, you and your wife are hanging out, and you stumble across this particular movie, you're sticking with it every time, whether you're quarter of the way through, halfway through, three quarters full, you're like, I'm, we're finishing this movie. What movie would that be? Well, does my wife have to be in on this movie? No, you can me? ditch her. You can be a bang, bang, shoot em up, high drama, high crime movie. That's an easy one for me. A gladiator. Okay. That's the, men, that's the men's movie. There's some scenes in there that are pretty crazy, powerful. Yeah. yeah. Really speak to identity. Yeah. All right, so here's the big one. You said you were 41 when you got married. That means when you were younger, you had that first celebrity crush. Who was your first <laughs> celebrity crush? Yeah, you won't believe this. My kids to this day give me grief about this. We even have a, a we have an ornament on our Christmas tree of this woman. <laughs> And it depends on if you're any of your listeners have have ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz. Oh yeah, Glenda, the Good Witch. I had the biggest crush on <laughs> for the longest period, from probably when I was six till I was probably fifteen. That I thought she hilarious. was the greatest thing in the world. Really? Now I, I can't even tell you her name in real life. I don't know who she is, but she she was this picture of this goddess. She was a picture of goodness, and she uh, rescued. Dorothy in the from from the Wicked Witch of the West, and it was, uh, and we have a we do we have a Christmas ornament of Glinda the Good Witch, and my children give me to this day give me grief about. So it. Richard, this is going to be no surprise to you. I've asked this question a lot. No one else has ever given that answer. I'm I, I, I'm I'm sure they haven't, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm sure going to bet nobody else does either. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to your book. So in, in the reflections on the existence of God, you talk about kind of three audiences in your mind. You've got young people, skeptics, followers of Jesus. Kind of prioritize or talk about those three audiences at this point in your life. Yeah, I would say the first audience, believe it or not, is, is, is younger people. There's a significant rise in atheism in our in our country. And the age group where that uh, that increase is the, is the strongest is in our younger people. It's it's kind of interesting, Jeff. Uh, I was reading where Pew Research and Fuller Seminary, I think, together did a study on a number of young people who grew up in the church, you know, grew up in a Christian family, and then they go off to college, they go off out in the workplace, and they lose their faith. And so they went out and, and identified a number of these these young people and asked them what happened. How did you get to this point? And the number one answer was, we had doubts and questions as we were growing up and nobody ever answered them. So we eventually just gave up on our faith. Mm. And that to me is a real tragedy because the evidence for the existence of God is incredibly compelling. It's very, I mean, it, it really is. It's very powerful. And I think it's important that young people know that as they go out of the skeptical world that we live in. I mean, I wrote it for my kids in one sense so that they could go out and truly engage in the skeptical culture that we live in. And so that was number one. Um, I've had a number, it's been really, God's really used the book in a number of uh, lives of skeptics. But then finally, it is also for Christians. We need to know and understand why we believe in God. And there's a lot of great, again, there's a lot of powerful reasons for it. 
I mean, think about John the Baptist. He was in prison and he sent some of his followers and asked Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting on or should we look for someone else? And here's the guy that when he baptized Jesus, the heavens opened up and he heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son. And so what did Jesus say when they asked him, are you the one? He says, go tell John, look, the blind receive their sight, the lame can walk. And those, he pointed them at evidence. And the way Paul persuaded people, he'd go and he said he would reason with them. And the final thing I'll just say is I wanted to write a book that anybody can read. It's real easy to read because so many books on the existence of God are very weighty, very hard mm. to read. And so I wanted to do it where you can be 17 and read it, or you can be just kind of a person that doesn't really read that much, but you can understand the arguments. So the one title of your wisdom book is Wisdom Life's Greatest Treasure. Why do you treasure wisdom and why should people treasure wisdom? I mean, I, I think when I think of mature believers, I think there's two things always come to my mind with a mature believer. Someone who really has wisdom and has a priority for wisdom in their lives, and they really understand something about God being glorified in all things. They have a great priority for God being glorified. Talk to wisdom, Amen. why you treasure it and why you think others should. Well, first of all, Solomon tells it's the most valuable thing you can possess in life, obviously, other than your salvation. Amen. It's of great value. It comes from the Hebrew wisdom. Uh, the word wisdom comes from the Hebrew word chakma, which means to have a skill or expertise in living. I mean, you know, what's that worth to you? The thing that's most significant about, and, and I believe, Jeff, this is of critical importance as we live in this culture we live in. Wisdom enables us to distinguish between those ideas in life that are true and those that are false. And that is so important that we, our lives are aligned with what is true. Mm. Ultimately, wisdom has an impact on the choices and decisions we make. You know, when it comes to when we, when we, as we live this life and we make choices and decisions, usually they're guided in by two different things. One is, is this morally right? Or morally wrong, and then the the second more is is more on judgment issues, which is where wisdom comes in. And Tim Keller says eighty percent of the decisions and choices you make are judgment issues, mm. and that's why we so desperately need wisdom. I mean, think about all the major decisions we make, whether it's career decision, who we marry, you know, our priorities, um, how we spend our time finances, just there's so much in life that's not really moral, but it's judgment driven. And we basically having good judgment is important. When it comes to moral issues, that will be determined by your character. When it comes to judgment issues, it will be determined by how much wisdom you have. And so for that reason, I think wisdom is a, it's imperative. Mm. And I would also add, I think one of the great responsibilities that we have as parents is teaching our children to be wise. Yeah. And of course, you know, how do we do this? Uh, you know, there, I, I could spend a lot of time on that, but the bottom line, the foundation is, you know, the book of Colossians, we're told that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It starts with him. Amen. Uh, you got the book of Proverbs, you got, we got the scripture, and then you've got a lot of great saints that have written about life. There's just so, but you got to be, you, you have to be, you have to desire to want wisdom. You have to pursue it. Mm. Solomon tells us that in Proverbs. Amen. So we're in such a unique moment in the world of sports and 
even seeing how the church and, and responds in a given situation and not to overstate it, but with this DeMar Hamlin thing, I think this DeMar Hamlin thing has been so interesting to watch unfold from Dan Orlovsky praying on national TV on NFL Live. You're a sports fan. I'm sure it's had its impact on you. What is a long-held belief that's been reinforced over this DeMar Hamlin situation? And what is something that's really surprised you? Well, I think that what it's done, and I don't want to get too heavy into this, but I think what this has done is it's demonstrated how so much of life is out of our control. Mm -hmm. And when people realize that, how do they respond? And so, you know, many people believe that this has been a, you know, even though it was a tragic incident, even though I understand he's out of the hospital and he might even play football again one day, I don't know. But anyway, but it really, uh, I think, woke people up, made them realize things they might not have realized or recognized. I think it gave Christians a great platform mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, demonstrate their faith. Yeah, my biggest concern though, Jeff, is kind of like what happened after 9-11. Mm. You know, church attendance skyrocketed after 9-11. Yep. And then within a year, we were back to kind of where we were. You know, let, let's assume uh, Mr. Hamlin is, you know, and, and, and hopefully that's the case. He's, he's going to be fine. You know, I think a lot of this may fade because we just kind of go back to where we were. Mm -hmm. But God can use it for good. There's no doubt. And I think he probably has. Amen. And, you know, we will basically one day we'll, we'll, we'll find out just the real results and the real significance of this event. Amen. So Richard, where can people find out more about you, about books, about the center for executive leadership, which sadly I got off on a number of things and we didn't get to talk about that. So I guess that means we'll have to have a part two, but where can people That'd find out more about you? You know, I, I, I was thinking about this earlier. The easiest thing to do is to go to Google and Google the center for executive leadership. And Birmingham, it'll say Birmingham, and go there and everything that you need to know about me, the books, any blog, I write a blog, uh, my podcasts, um, everything about me is on the website. And that's just the easiest way to find it. The website is actually www.thecenterbham.org. Uh, -E Richard, thanks for, uh, and thank you, Becky. Becky Gray, for your persistence to see this thing through, I, I feel like I've been in uh, Discipleship 101 and Discipleship 401 and everywhere in between, and uh, I feel like I'm a better man for it. I appreciate when people talk about podcasts and the content it can be to other people, just as you make a drive or you know, you're sitting in a doctor's office or whatever. I feel like I've been able to deep dive for myself and drink from a fountain that feels uh, Niagara Falls-esque. And uh, your, your oh, wow. maturity just radiates out in, in who you are in Christ. So thanks for giving Thank me you. the time. Thanks for investing me in this. And definitely we'll look forward to some dialogue offline and see where there's hook and arms to be able to do for the kingdom and for the sake of connecting men to men and men to God. Thanks, Jeff. I, this was real enjoyable for me. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Pinkleton Pull Aside podcast. You can reach Jeff at gatheringmiamivalley.org or find us on Facebook at The Gathering of the Miami Valley. Join us again next week for another honest and rich conversation. The Rise FM Podcast Network.